Now tonight, we go on with our series in Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Tonight, chapters 6 and 7. Let me give you a bit of context as you turn that up. The book of Revelation makes things that are unclear, clear. That's what it means. It tells us how things really are. It takes us, as it were, behind the scenes to see who is in control, how things are working, and how things will work out in the future. It is a great principle for us to have in our minds that the book of Revelation is to make stuff clear. And when we read this kind of language, apocalyptic language, which is different, we need to remember all the time that it was written to make things clear. It is, secondly, by way of introduction, a revelation from Jesus to his church with a particular eye to the persecuted church. A feature of apocalyptic literature, like Revelation in the Bible, is that it is written for stressful times. And throughout history, Christians and churches in different parts of the world, persecuted for their faith, have found great encouragement from a book like Revelation. That in spite of what it looks like around you, or feels like around you, on the ground, as it were, in the world, the church under pressure, the church seemingly on the back foot, the truth revealed in a book like Revelation is that God rules, or that God is in control, and that Jesus reigns as King of God's everlasting kingdom. And that those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation are safe and will reign with him in a new creation. So it makes stuff clear, and it makes stuff clear in tough times for the church. God reigns. Christ rules. He will bring you home to a new creation. Now, chapters 4 to 16, the central section of the book, describe for us, if you like, a history from God's perspective. Chapters 4 and 5, just uh, flick back to them and have a look. They're like a preface to the history book that follows. Describe for us, one, God on his throne, and two, the Lamb of God, the risen reigning Jesus beside him. Jesus who stands tonight in glory as king of God's everlasting kingdom, bearing the marks of Calvary on his hands. That's the preface. And then the history unfolds in chapter 6 to 16, as Jesus unveils to us God's plan for history. Now, the period of history described in Revelation chapters 6 to 16 is the period between Jesus' first coming and his return at the end of time, 
when the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth will begin. Now, that's the period described in Revelation 6 to 16. And that period is often described as the last days. And the last days simply means the last days between Christ's coming and his return. It doesn't mean just a little bit of time right at the very end. It means from the time Christ came 2,000 years ago to his return at the end of the age when he will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the period of the last days. That's the period covered as God reveals history to us in these chapters 6 through 16. So see the logic building up here. 4 and 5, the preface, God is on his throne. Jesus Christ reigns beside him. Jesus has a book that he will open that will reveal God's plan for history. That book is open in chapter 6 to 16, and we get God's plan for the age between Christ's first coming and his return. What is happening in the world? Now, one little last nuance. Chapter 6 to 16 Describe that period of history four times. Let me try and explain that to us. So, 6 to 16, describe this period of history four times. And what you get is is you get taken through in chapters 6 and 7, one round, if you like, one sweep through history. Then in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, you get another run through history. And then in chapters 12 to 14, the third run through that same period... And then finally, in chapters 15 and 16, the fourth run through that period. It's like uh, four uh, camera uh, angles. So a good illustration of this, a football match. Four journalists write about the same match, the same result, the same scores, the same number of yellow cards. But there are four different reports, four different angles. Or, of all the television programs that have recently been made about the Queen's life and reign, it's all the same stuff. You might think, watching all these programs, they are just the same. But they're just different angles, different lenses, different slants, different perspectives. Now, it's really important that we get this clear. So, 4 and 5, God on his throne, Christ beside him, reigning as king, Christ has this book, which is God's plan for the age between Christ's first coming and his return. Jesus opens up that book, and we get history from God's perspective. And, of course, we're living in that period. He's going to tell us what we should see in the world and what is happening, and he does it through four camera angles looking at it in different ways. Now, we've waggled on the T long enough. Let's drive off Revelation 6 and Seven. Let's read it. And remember, this is here to make things clear. Do hold on to that principle as we read it. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And the seals just open up this history book. And I heard one of the four living creatures. The living creatures are like angels or messengers or ambassadors for God. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature, the second messenger or envoy of God, saying, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he, that's Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribes of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom 
and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Well, let's pray for God's help. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father, we pray that you would speak clearly to us from your Word, and that we would listen and understand and heed what you say. We ask all of that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, as ever, you'll see on the inside of the service sheet a number of headings to help us understand this. First, what I've called the world under judgment, verses 1 to 8. Now, verses 1 to 8 describe the opening of the first four seals. And as we read this, you will have observed a repeated pattern in terms of content and language and structure as each of these four seals is opened. And with the opening of each seal, a horse and a rider is described. Now, these four horses and their riders are sometimes referred to as the four horsemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, I'm not sure how helpful a title that is. It just kind of removes this into the realm of the fairy story. There's an impression here that is made in these eight verses, a kind of unified picture or impression of stuff that is going on in the world. And that's exactly what it is intended to be. It is a picture of the world in which we live. Not that we see these horses and riders in the world, but we see in our world as we look out on the world, the kind of activity that they are engaged in. Now, it is true what is described here of the world. At the time this revelation was first given to the Apostle John as he languished in exile because of persecution on the island of Patmos, it is true in John's time It is true in our time, and it will be true in the future before Jesus returns. This is a picture of the world in which we live, a world under judgment. And if you switch on your TV, read a newspaper, look online, this is what is happening in the world. Firstly, verses 1 and 2, a white horse, its rider holding a bow, symbolizing 
conquest. He rides out bent on conquest. And it is not hard to see that in the world, the human heart for conquest in history or today. When the second seal is open, verses 3 and 4, we see a bright red, literally a fiery red horse. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And this horse and its rider symbolizes war and bloodshed. So build up this unified picture of the world in which we live, conquest, war, and bloodshed. It's not another world, is it? The next rider, verses 5 and 6, is on a black horse. This rider brings economic hardship to the world. Holding a pair of scales in his hand, his principle of distribution is unfair and unjust. So the reference to a quart of wheat for a denarius, that's a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, is meant to illustrate kind of economic inequality or economic injustice, economic hardship, unfair distribution of wealth in a world or a society, and economic exploitation. And again, that is not another world, is it? It's the world in which we live. And the fourth horse and horsemen, seven and eight, most sobering of all is death. Riding a pale horse, the word translated pale is the color of decaying or rotting flesh. It is a horrible picture. And Hades, the place where the dead are kept, closely follows this rider. Conquest, war, bloodshed, economic inequality, hardship, poverty, sickness, and death is not another world. The second half of verse 8 is a summary of the activities of all of this stuff. Just look at that with me. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the world in which we live, a world where conquest, war, bloodshed, economic hardship, disease, and death are an ever-present reality. And by and large, it is the stuff that is the content of the news every day. I remember as a child watching the six o'clock news, and I, I always used to look forward as a child to the little news item at the end, which just tried to make out that the world wasn't quite as bad as the first three quarters of the news. You know the silly little story Trevor MacDonald would say, and finally, those of you who are old enough to remember him, and finally, and you'd get some kind of, let's cheer up before we go to bed at half past ten at night. But the first three quarters of the news every day is the stuff of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, what is striking about these verses is this. Not that they describe the world in which we live. What is striking about these verses is that God's agents or God's messengers, 
these living creatures, call out these horses into the world. That's striking, shocking. Notice with me in the text. Look with me, verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! It's not just, go, I'll let you go. It's come. Come out into this world. And again, verse 3, I heard the second living creature say, come. Come out, war and bloodshed into this world, says God's living creature. The same verse 5 and the same verse 7. Is this really saying that these horsemen representing conquest, war, and bloodshed, and so on and so forth, are called out into the world in which we live at God's command? Is that what this is really saying? The answer to that question is yes. That is what it is really saying. And the point that is being made, if this is a description of the world in which we live, is that this is a description of a world that is under the judgment of God. Uh, Let me put it like this. As a consequence of our sin and rebellion as humanity, God has put a curse on the world. It is a world under His judgment. It's the language of Romans chapter 1. God's judgment on humanity is God giving humanity over to the consequences of that rebellion. We can't simply content ourselves with the language of Revelation saying that there is evil in the world and God is ultimately sovereign, which He is. There's more going on than that. It's God giving our world over under His curse and under His judgment. And that's a sobering thing. And you see, the reason for that is that sin, which is at the heart of our rebellion as humanity, is deeply, deeply grievous to God. And His judgment on sinful humanity is seen, is experienced by us in the world in which we live. The world in which we live has been cursed by God. It is under His judgment. Now, that is what Revelation, I think, is saying, but it does not, let me kind of build you back up now, it it does not for a moment imply that God is not absolutely in control. How do we know that He is in control? One, it is God who bids them come. It is God who opens the stable door. It is God who unlocks the stable door and puts that word under judgment. Of course, the the complete reverse of that is true. The God who puts the world under judgment is the God who will deliver the world out of His judgment. Notice also in the text, they are given authority and power. So, for example, verse 2, a crown was given to him. Or verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. The end of verse 4, he was given a great sword. And the summary in the second half of verse 8, they were given authority over a fourth 
of the earth. Now, the word given in apocalyptic language or literature is a key word. In the book of Daniel, which is the same kind of language, the word given is the most common word in the second half of the book of Daniel. Given authority, given power. God ultimately is in control, and all human power and authority is given and taken by God. And so the great kingdoms and empires of world history come and go. Power given and taken by God. God never, ever loses control. God, if you like, holds the reins of these horses. He holds the coattails of the devil, Satan, the prince of this world. And our Christian hope is that one day God will bring this world of conquest, war and bloodshed, economic hardship and death to an end. He will reign it right in at the end. Now, in a sense, I'd like us to stop there and just ponder the stuff in this. It's really quite sobering and significant. It will not do to have a kind of Christian worldview that God looks in on a world that is fallen and evil and just comes up with a rescue plan. The point being made here is that God is involved in a fundamental overarching way in the world in which we find ourselves. Humanity has rebelled against God and God has cursed this world. God has put this world under his judgment. And what we see in this world, sin and war and bloodshed and disease and death and all the struggles that we know in the the details of our lives as individuals is because we live in a world that God has put under his judgment. Because his heart is so deeply grieved at human sin. And yet, there is not any part of this world that is evil that God does not hold the reins of. He limits, he checks, he controls, and in the end, he will reign every vestige of evil in when he returns to establish a new creation. Now, moving on, one key feature of the world in which we live in rebellion against God is the persecution or the oppression experienced by God's people. And remember that the book of Revelation was written to encourage persecuted Christians. Alistair prayed tonight for the persecuted church in the world. And in this part of the world, we do not face any of that stuff. Thank God for that. But in many parts of the world, Christians do and have done through the centuries experienced really extreme persecution. And that's what's in mind here in verses 9 to 11. With the opening of the fifth seal, we have a shift in perspective. The picture is of Christian martyrs who had been slain, verse 9, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Just notice in passing the reasons for persecution, whatever the scale of the persecution, verse 9, what are the reasons the church is persecuted? One, commitment to the Word of God, and two, witnessing 
to the gospel? What are the two arrow points of the church that meet with flack, as it were, coming back at them? One is commitment to the Word of God. Two is speaking the gospel. And where are the souls of those that have been martyred? Verse 9, they are under the altar. Verse 11, they are wearing white robes. They are under the protection of the Lamb who was sacrificed. But even in heaven they cry out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? I wonder if you think that's a, a question from another world. Think of the parts of the world today where Christians are facing intense persecution. Do you think that they will cry out, How long, O Lord, until you deliver your people? Of course they do. And even in our tiny way in this side of the globe, we can find ourselves crying out in this weary world, How long, O Lord? How long? God's answer, verse 11 they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's a strange, puzzling little text, isn't it? What is in God's mind when he says, you need to wait until more people are persecuted? Why is he saying that? He's saying that because the persecution of the church is so often the means of the advance of the gospel. So why will God wait for more people to be persecuted? Because in so waiting, more people will be turned to Jesus Christ for their salvation. How long? And then the opening of the sixth seal, verses 12 to 17. The description here is of the great day of wrath, judgment day at the end of history. And that's what we see with the opening of the sixth seal in verses 12 to 17, the day of wrath, the day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns and the wrath of God is poured out on those who have not believed. You see the logic of this, the world in which we live is a world that has all the marks of the judgment of God. It's a world under God's judgment. It's a world under God's curse. But at the end of time, the Lord Jesus will return and there will be a judgment day. And the stuff that is in our world that is bad and hard and difficult and horrible will be nothing to the sense of wrath and judgment that will be seen on that day. And what a sober warning it is. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. In verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. So whether you are a king or a prince or a slave 
or a free man, whoever you are, on that day, unless chapter 7 is true of you, we'll get to that in a moment, you will be crying out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? On Judgment Day, all those who have not believed in Jesus, whoever they are, will face the wrath of God. It is a frightening sight of what will happen. Now, I always think, this is a little aside, that services that are noisy or disruptive, and this one has been one of them, all sorts of noise going along, and uh, it's warm and tired in here, and there's a temptation that you fall asleep. Let me urge you, if you are falling asleep, to wake up and listen to this. There is no more serious message in the world than this. That one day... What is described here in Revelation 6? The wrath of God being poured out on those who have not believed will be the fate of all humanity. And I wonder if the description here of the wrath of God being poured out on those who do not believe reminds you of anything. The darkness, the earthquake. Does it remind you of, for example, Matthew's description in his gospel of the wrath of God being poured out on the Lord Jesus. Darkness, Matthew 27, came over all the land, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And the point is that the wrath of God poured out on Jesus at Calvary is described in exactly the same way as the wrath of God that will be poured out on all those who have not believed at the end of time. So what we read here in Revelation 6, that will be the experience of those who have not trusted in Jesus, is what Jesus himself experienced for those who have. That's the point. And whether you are a prince or a king, or rich or poor, if you have not trusted in Jesus then the description here of the sixth seal in Revelation is a description of you. Or, whether you are a prince or a king, poor or rich, trusting in Jesus, his salvation is equally for you. The great day of their wrath has come, verse 17, and who can stand it? Some of you here will remember a man called John Harker. One or two of you are smiling. Most of you will not remember him. He came into church a number of years ago, literally with his fists clenched. He was wheelchair-bound. He had deep resentments against God and the gospel. And he would call out in services from time to time to try to disrupt the preaching. And then one night in the middle of a sermon on Revelation 6 and 7 at these words, according to John's own testimony, 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? His conclusion was that he could not, and he needed to find out how he could stand before the Lord Jesus and not be judged for all eternity. And wonderfully, John became a Christian, and very soon after that, he was diagnosed and died of a brain tumor. But a clear Christian. And that's the question I want to finish with tonight, is are you safe? Can you stand the wrath of God? Are you sure? And if you are, then don't switch off for the last few minutes. Just try to contemplate what it is you have been saved from. Chapter 7 is like a big interlude in the text. We don't get to the opening of the seventh seal until chapter 8 and verse 1. Chapter 7 answers the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? Who can stand before the Lord Jesus on judgment day safe and secure? Or where do you stand? Where do you stand in this text of Revelation? Are you sitting there at the tail end of chapter 6? Is that where you are? Or are you into chapter 7? Chapter 7 is the place to be. It is a description of the security of God's people. The righteous in chapter 7 are described as those who are sealed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 of chapter 7 refers to an angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. Elsewhere in Revelation, this angel is referred to as the great angel of grace, the Lord Jesus. It is because of his atoning sacrificial death that men and women can be sealed. That's the point. Literally, verse 3, have a seal put on their foreheads. And their status, those who are sealed, verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are forgiven. And who is sealed? Who is righteous? Well, there are three references in the text. The end of verse 3, the servants of our God. Just look at that. Or verse 4, the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then at the beginning of verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, these references all refer to the same company of people. That is the company of all believers. That is how apocalyptic literature works. And put together in your minds the 144,000 and the great multitude that no one could count. Put these references side by side. And what does it convey? It conveys vastness and exactness. If you are a believer, you are one of this company. And that company is vast like the sand on a beach, too vast for you and I to count, but God knows that number exactly. And what does it mean to be sealed now? It means that nothing can harm us, It means that we are ultimately secure. It means if you are feeling the effects of this world, whether illness or death, or in far 
worse cases in other parts of the world, persecution, war, bloodshed, if you are sealed in Jesus, you are safe. Sitting here tonight, you are eternally safe. Whenever you do any visits as a minister, whoever you visit gets a little dose of the sermon in the five days before it's preached. This week, I was able to spend some time with one of our elders who is dying. And of course, we read Revelation 6 and 7, and I was able to say to Sinclair, you have nothing to fear, because you are one of the sealed, because you have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, and you're safe. And it's not an exaggeration to say to you, that makes all the difference in the world. If you cry out, how long, O Lord? There is an answer. Trust me. Wait. I will bring you home. In the here and now, it gives over to praise. Have you noticed how many of the worship songs we sing are out of the book of Revelation? What can you sing now? if you are sealed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Or we can sing blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I nearly burst into song. You know, when you sing these worship songs from Revelation, you're singing out of a profound sense of thanksgiving and security that is not superficial, that is not light, that is not casual. It's what Sinclair and Joan can sit in their house and sing from their hearts. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on his throne. Be to our God praise forever and ever. Amen. And of course... Being sealed in Jesus means we look forward to a glorious future, a glorious future inheritance in the new creation. And what a prospect that is, verse 15, the end of chapter 7. Therefore they who are before the throne of God will serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a quote at the end from Psalm 23. And uh, the true application of a psalm like Psalm 23 is not that God in this life will lead us to points where the clouds disperse and the blue sky breaks through and we're in a green valley. Praise God when these days come. What this is talking about is when the Lord Jesus as our shepherd leads us to a spring which never ends giving up living water and to a place where you and I will never, ever, ever weep again.
Now that, if I said the beginning of Revelation 6 was this world, that is another world, but the world that will come for the sealed who have trusted in Jesus. And then the final verse, 8, 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The, the word half an hour there is simply a kind of stepping stone till the next verse when this run through history starts all over again. But isn't it interesting, and this happens all the way through apocalyptic literature, Daniel, I've been reading and writing about Daniel. Every time Daniel gets a vision about God and his throne, about the Lord Jesus, about salvation, about the need to trust him, about what it means to have done that, every time Daniel gets one of these visions, he falls prostrate before the Lord Jesus, and he has nothing to say. Silence. And in some ways, the most powerful worship song of all is silence. And the question crying out to all of you tonight and to me is, where do you stand? Are you in chapter 6, facing that? Or are you in chapter 7? And let me implore you to consider that question. Who can stand the wrath of God? And the wonderful answer is Jesus bore the wrath of God so that you might be set free. Isn't that a wonderful answer? Well, let's do what Revelation says. Let's be silent for a moment. Then I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Father, these are deep and important truths, and we pray, Lord, that those here with us tonight who maybe are not yet Christians would consider this description of the world in which we live and of the judgment to come and of the glory of the new creation and ponder in their hearts the invitation of the Lord Jesus to trust Him for salvation, therefore to be secure and steady and safe. And for those of us, Lord, who have done so, and would count ourselves amongst the company of the righteous, may we live lives that are ever thankful, sobered and silenced, humbled by Your Word, contemplating not only what we have been saved for, the glory of the new creation, but contemplating also what we have been saved from, the judgment, the wrath of a holy and a righteous God. So, seal your words to our hearts 
for your glory and for the honor of Jesus' name. Amen.